0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Michael Finch, a Hollywood screenwriter whose credits include Predators and the latest chapter in one of the hottest action franchises, John Wick. Chapter four, starring Keanu Reeves. In today's conversation, Michael and I talk about his beginnings as the son of two writers and how selling a script while back in law school set his entire career in motion, his philosophy on surviving the industry and the obstacles that screenwriters face, including his experience writing the screenplay for 2010's Predators, technically in only three weeks. Also, why Michael thought he had been hired for just a quick polish pass on the draft of this latest John Wick screenplay before taking over screenwriting duties for the entire project. His experience writing action set pieces with massive scope. And why director Chad Sahelski then chooses to purposely add imperfections to a film that Michael describes as secretly a Sergio Leone Western. All of this and much more. If you enjoy soundstage access, you might want to hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes. We'd love to ask you to support us by leaving a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Michael, thank you so, so much for joining us on the podcast. I'm extremely excited. I thought we would you know, take a step back and talk about the professional aftermath in a good way of your first project because even after the success of Predators in 2010, it was another four years before we got you know, the November man and I'm sure there were lots of scripts you wrote in between those projects. We can talk about that. But looking back at things now, how did your perception evolve from the way you imagined yourself breaking into the business to the way it actually went down in those first few years?
1: That's a really interesting question. It's a very long question.
0: Uh, It's a relatively
1: long timeline. So I graduated uh, college in 1990 and, uh, you know, sort of wandered around. I knew I wanted to be a writer. My family had been writers. So it was the only thing I I knew. They'd also traveled a lot. They did television features and they retired relatively young. And I, I sort of looked at them and said, well, it seems like a pretty good way to make a living. Now, that was my first mistake. Obviously, it's an incredibly challenging way to make a living. Uh, not one that I would recommend to anyone, as you know, Randa. So uh, I got out college. I wrote a couple of scripts. They were not very good. I eventually got an agent. And then I, uh, after you know, several years of frustration, three or four years, I decided I need to make a living, so I went to law school. Started law school, and about four or five months in, I sold a script uh, called Confrontation to Paramount. And it was a, essentially an alien invasion movie. The, the logline was, we have one of those that want it back. We essentially shoot down an alien craft it out of, the, out of the bottom of the Pacific, it's on an aircraft carrier, and there's an alien in it, that's cool, except they come for it. So now we're sort of in a, in a fight with very powerful extraterrestrials uh, on a, an American warship. And that sort of got my career going. Now, at this point, I was comp- really didn't have much training, and certainly no formal training in film, and I simply got lucky. So I didn't know what I was doing. I booked a bunch of jobs, made, suddenly I was, you know, I live in an apartment that cost me 500 bucks a month with some roommates, and I'm making tons of money. And I'm feeling large and sort of went on with that for a while. And like many, many writers, flavor of the month and then sort of started to decline. Somewhere along the line there, it started to sort of like evolve the craft a little bit, started to study it, started to work on it a little bit. It started to understand what the industry was like, which was, you know, again, you're writing to a market. You're writing to a specific genre. You're, you're, you're trying to not follow the trends, but get ahead of them. And uh, eventually sort of like, you know, I perfected the art of pitching which, is, by the way, is a, it's, it's, it's an art. It's more of an art in, in many ways than, uh, than writing. Writing is a craft. Pitching, which is inherently unfair to writers because it asks us, most of us are natural introverts, it asks us to perform in front of people, which is a really odd and twisted sort of way of looking, you know, of, of us as, like, people to see us and us to see the world. I was that writer that worked pretty consistently for many, many years, for probably 10 years, sold several specs, sold some for actually substantial amounts, a lot of heat, and they just didn't get made. So eventually, after one of my writing partners and I, Alex Litvak and I, wrote something called Medieval, uh, which we sold to Regency. You know, we got this opportunity, a call from Robert Rodriguez, this opportunity to do Predators. And, you know, it was like, you know, we were obviously Predator fans. And, and you know, that's one of the seminal sci-fi action pieces of, of all time. And sort of, uh, you know, dropped that process and became off of that, wrote it. Uh, we, had, we, we, we literally had one year to write it because they dated the movie before they had a script. So they, they knew when they were going to release it. So we had one year to sort of like, well, actually we had three weeks to write the script realistically. And then we were sort of involved in pre-production for, 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 for a substantial amount of time where the script evolved and whatnot. And that product came out and that was fantastic. It was great. It wasn't good enough to spawn sequels. But from that came a series of other opportunities. Masters of the Universe was one, which had every director on the planet attached. At one point had a series of actors attached, went up and down. It looks like it's going to uh, migrate now with the seventh set of directors and actors from Sony and Netflix. And somewhere along the line, you know, November Man came along uh, based upon, you know, a relationship I had with Pierce on, an, on a project I'd written that did, never got made called uh, The Legend of Lochinvar, based on a Sir Walter Scott poem that he liked. And uh, sort of just, you know, I was that guy that stumbled along until I found my footing, just like everybody else. And, it, and, and I think that I, I now end up uh, teaching quite lots of frequently at UCSD, at their MFA program. And I've said, working with some incredibly talented young writers, one thing I, I have to say and one thing that I learned and one thing that became really sort of the, the guiding light for me is that it, oftentimes as a writer, you sort of like look at the industry and, you, and it becomes antagonistic because they, they, the industry doesn't recognize your craft, doesn't recognize your contributions. It doesn't recognize your capacities and that you can get, get kind of angry. That's getting angry is okay, but channeling it correctly is the true talent. And that is a realization that you can't actually be beaten down unless you quit. Writing is fundamentally unique in Hollywood. And so far as all you need is a piece of paper and a pen. To be a director, to be a producer, to be an executive, you need other people's money. To be a writer, you just need your ideas, pen, and drive. And so I, I suppose that the, if the question was, what have I learned in Hollywood, it is to, to keep writing.
0: Before getting to John Wick, I, I thought I would ask you, you know, a few process questions. What's your relationship with screenplay structure? And when do you know you have enough ideas to begin assembling them into a movie?
1: Very interesting question and one that it's a relatively complicated answer. The completely unsatisfactory answer is if you read enough screenplays and watch enough movies, you begin to think about it enough, you begin to internalize the structure. So I cannot tell you why, but I, my, I will hit my mark on act one, two, and three, and, and whatever page I decide that this particular film needs, whether it's a shorter one or a longer one. So what I do is I you know, come up with, a, with an idea. I like the idea, and, and usually some scenes start to come up. So, but there's are scenes in no particular order. They're just things that make me smile, things that, that make me happy, things that make me feel something. Because again, when we're writing a screenplay, we're really trying to evoke an emotional response, Now, it might be puerile, it might be revulsion, it might be uh, laughter, it might be any kind of stimulation. So, you know, I I was thinking of, of, of every scene in a film needs to have a beginning and an end. It needs to obviously function to build up character, to build up plot, to build up story, to sort of like drive the narrative forward, but it also needs to provoke something. I want to be able to open a script and read any given scene and feel even even just in a vacuum and, and go, OK, cool. That's cool. I got something. There's a there's a line here. There was a, a pop. There was something that was meaningful. So looking at the world that way, I start to write scenes down and in a, in a pad, yellow false cap, send myself emails, whatever. Pretty soon I start to have four or five scenes that work together. And then there's three groups of four or five scenes that work together. And I use actually the old index cards on a giant whiteboard, magnetic whiteboard, and start putting them up. And relatively quickly, I mean, it can be within hours. Sometimes, sometimes days, sometimes longer, it depends on what the assignment is. If it's a spec, it takes longer. If it's a rewrite, it can be much shorter because there's an, exist- an extant or existing structure. So essentially, it's coming up with a series of ideas. Uh, and there, there are specific scenes, writing them down, throwing them in a box, and eventually starting to put them up in some semblance of an order. And pretty soon, you got a movie. This hit goes out to you, Mr. Wicks.
0: Forty-two regular, wasn't it? Yeah. And so it begins. I want to make sure we start transitioning our conversation into John Wick Chapter Four, which is going to be out by the time people listen to this. Could you talk about the evolution of, of the first few drafts of, of John Wick Chapter Four as you were boarding the project?
1: I, I will tell you that, that was a unique experience for me. I've done a lot of rewrites, some of which have gotten made, some of which have not gotten made. I've been rewritten. I've, I've done post-production polishes. Wick was unique insofar as, far as the, the genius of Chad and Keanu, the director and Keanu Reeves, is their capacity to hold things back. The John Wick franchise is incredibly redactive. Those movies should not work for, to start with. They work not by virtue of what you're told. They work by virtue of what you're not told. So the first thing I have to do in order to service this franchise was to sort of squash the natural instinct towards exposition, towards explanation, towards plugging up all the logic holes and lean into a story that was really, first and foremost, entertaining. Second, that expanded the nature of the world, which means, you know, one of the fascinations with John Wick I said, like, why do people like it? People like it because, you know, Keanu is just likable. Chad is the premier stunt director in the world right now. And as far as action, uh, he also has a, an artist's eye. So he's got great scope and scale, great color, especially with Dan Lausman, you know, doing the, 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 the cinematography. So I'm looking at all these, these, the, the, these pieces, I'm looking at Keanu, an actor that actually has the courage not to speak. This is, this is a guy that will can look at the camera and evoke a series of responses or expressions. So on that project, it was really sitting with them for a very, very long time. And I, you know, I said, I had probably 10, 12 meetings with Keanu and Chad before I went to write and not one of them was less than nine hours. I don't know if it, if it was some form of sadism on their part or, or what, but they really like to sit and talk, especially Keanu, by the way. He will, he will act out scenes, all the parts, and laugh, and then he'll put his head in his hands and say, this this is shit, this sucks, this sucks, and you know we'll, we'll go over it again. So uh, it's a very interesting process on that, and for, for, for that, you know, you want to bring as much Of yourself as possible to something that is as successful a franchise as wick at the same time you want to honor the creators the creators here really derek wasn't in the room obviously but but you know chad and keanu they are the heart and soul of that franchise so it was that that one's really taking cues from them expanding the world and resisting the instinct to talk down to the audience because again what they have done so well in the wick franchise where i think we've continued or attempted to continue in wick four is to say yeah okay this is a genre piece but it's it's definitely elevated. It's elevated for serious series of reasons. One is the look, the feel, the size, the scope, the quality of the acting, the quality of the actors we're getting. But also because we're not actually talking down to you and telling you what's going on. We're simply dropping you into the middle of a situation and expecting you to be a thinking adult and to sort of catch up. And if you're a little bit behind, that's okay because in the real world, you're always a little bit behind in any given sort of new situation. So for me, this was very eye-opening because it ran counter to my, you know, years of working within the studio system where you kept on getting the note to, I don't understand, explain it. Like the audience is dumb. These filmmakers do not think their audience is dumb. They respect their audience and they view this as not just genre fare, but as a living, breathing sort of story. So to answer your question, when I approached this, I had to look at Keanu and, and I had to realize one thing. And that is that when he is playing the role of John Wick, he believes he's John Wick and he believes that the world of John Wick actually exists, and once I kind of figured that out, I, I started looking at it not as fiction, but as actually as a series of events and people that actually events that could happen and people that actually exist.
0: Goodbye to you, my trusted friend. A new day is dawning. New no ideas, new no rules, new no management. We've known each other since we were nine or two.
1: Who is this? The Marquis de Gramont. Challenge him to single combat. Win or lose, it's a way out. I don't sit at the table. Your family does.
0: Well, we were extremely lucky to talk to Chad Stahelski, again, the director. And what I was telling him is that I think what's so fantastic in the John Wick franchise is this amazing combination of blending weather locations and vehicles in a way that makes every set piece feel unique.
1: I'll be honest, Chad comes to this in a really interesting way. He comes to this, he knows the movie he wants to make, he just doesn't know the order in which to tell it. So he, he comes to with a series of set pieces. For instance, you will see one that there's a very large club scene with giant waterfalls, and, and, and interior waterfalls. He knew from way back when he wanted that. There's a duel. He knew he wanted a duel. He also knew that he wanted to the duel on, the top, uh, on Montmartre so he could go up the stairs and down the stairs to it, which is your which famous sort of set of stairs. He knew he wanted on this one to be something of a log to showcase,
0: you know, he knew he wanted
1: to be in Paris, he knew he wanted to be in Osaka, and mostly he knew that he wanted this to, to essentially have a Western vibe. He wanted it to feel like a Sergio Leone film in a lot of ways. Thus, you'll see some allusions to it, and again, I'm not, there's no spoilers in the trailers, you'll see some big shots of the desert the season before, you see a lot of gunfighting, obviously. So um I would take my cues from him on what those scenes, what generally they wanted to be. Now, the details I would obviously write, and those details would then be summarily thrown out whenever he actually went on location and they built the fight scenes. So I was very much in this instance servicing his vision on the sets. And we had a pretty nice shorthand. I mean, he, he understood that you know, he would, he would ask me to write the whole action sequence out, and I would do so dutifully, knowing that it, at the end of the day, he would throw it out and do whatever the hell... Uh, I, I, and this was not just frustrating to me, it was frustrating to the stud teams, because they would practice a series of studs. He would come in and change it literally on the day. Now, the reason he does this, and there's a I, I couldn't figure it out for a while, that was infuriating, but there's a method to his madness, and the method is this. He was a, a professional fighter for a long time. He views films as combat in a weird way. He also realizes that in fights, um, nothing ever goes as planned. So he wants his stunt teams to practice a bunch of sequences, then he'll go and change the, the order of those sequences last minute so that they actually make mistakes. He wants to film John Wick not being perfect. He wants to show John Wick slipping, falling, not getting the right, the right shot because of, of, of this distraction or that, or that distraction, which is what actually happens. Now. I sort of go down this path because I say it's impossible to write that in a lot of ways. So what I would do is like, you know, I'd go to the set, I'd see the waterfalls, I'd see the test shots. I'd understand that he wants dogs moving through it or swords slicing through the water. And, you know, I understand that, you know, we'd, we'd look at the lighting with Dan Lauston and see how he wanted to, to light it. And then I would try and write the scene to that. And again, this was done on location, like the script that Lionsgate Greenlit had a series of sequences and they they, they were just fine. They essentially, they they had all of these moments, but they didn't have the details in the order that they, that you'll find in the film. Those were found as we were shooting, essentially.
0: I mean, you you mentioned scope. And I think that even beyond the action in Paris or the desert in Jordan, John Wick features ordinary scenes of dialogue that take place in extraordinary locations. What was the evolution of understanding the emotional power of choosing the right location? Everything seems to have like, is just bathing in, in visual richness.
1: And you, you are 100% right. Both Chad and Keanu are big proponents of using the environment to promote character. They are very concerned, whenever we're with the Marquis, for instance, Scarsgard, uh, who plays wonderfully, grand settings, gilded, perfect suits, Art, uh, huge scope. That is designed very specifically to generate a sense of power and authority. This is, this is the, rep- the highest level of the table in a lot of ways. When it, this is the guy that fixes problems. The, the, the problems are the, the intractable problems. He has all the power of the table at his disposal. And we wanted to demonstrate that by this is a man that can clear the Place Trocadere. They, they, they can literally empty the Louvre to sit in, who can be at L'Operat by himself watching something, or at Versailles. So there's that. Bowery King, obviously, you know, is a, a pre-existing character and, you know, my personal favorite. Anytime Fishburne speaks, it's wonderful. I, 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 I'd watch him read the phone book, let's put it that way. And also the fact that he's sort of slightly Faustian insofar as he, he, he creates mischief and enjoys watching it. So you know, there's that. Whatever we went with on a, this a iteration, the most challenging character in a lot of ways was Ian McShames, only because uh, his circumstance changes dramatically from past films. He is suddenly, a man very much on the inside he suddenly finds himself on the outside. And matching that to the visuals was quite challenging. I, I think Chad succeeded by, by creating a, a couple of scenes. And I, again, I, I know I'm speaking very broadly on this, but I, I don't think it was in the trailer, so I, I, I don't wanna get in trouble. But rest assured that, uh, that all the settings are designed to buttress character and also to invoke a certain mood. There's a reason that, that we shot, I think, 90-something nights, which, by the way, about 40 nights in, people start to go insane. Uh, so about 60 nights in, it gets weird. But, uh, you know, ch- Chad shoots a night because when it's raining, when it's dark, when light is reflecting off of odd surfaces, you suspend reality a little bit more. And some of the things that John does, like not being killed when he's shot, you know, because he has a suit uh, that's, that's armored or Kevlar-infused, people believe it more. There's something about Chad Keanu that I found really fascinating. One of the reasons I I got excited about it and and sort of stayed on to this this piece for the entire time was, um, which was not my original intention, actually. My original intention was to come and do a a, a production polish or a a quick rewrite and leave. I stayed on because they are both entirely and absolutely uncompromising in their vision of what this is, can be, and should be. Uh, These are guys that actually lay it all on the line. There were easier paths and easier ways to make this movie that would have made it not as good or interesting or honest as it is. Those guys did not take those paths. They steered into every hard sort of choice, every physically demanding choice, every sort of like fiscally demanding choice. They didn't run from a single fight with other actors, with the studio, with me, with each other. Uh, which was really, really empowering in a lot of ways. Like, like I, you, you knew these guys were going to give it their all. It was going to be a great film where they were going to die in the process. And that was kind of a cool thing to, to, to be a part of and
0: watch. We spoke about structure a second ago, and I was wondering if you guys mapped out the injury that John sustains over the course of the movie to make sure that the level of danger is always emotionally tangible for the audience.
1: Yes, there, there's a real dramatic tension. At once it is meant to be real, and, and the other is absolute fantasy, obviously. So you're, you're, you're sort of walking a fine line, and you're asking the audience to go along with you. Now, you're not talking down to them. You're saying, hey, listen, we're all going to have a good time here. You just have to suspend a level of disbelief. And so, yeah, we, we, we absolutely do track that, but recognize that John Wick is something of a superhero in a lot of ways. I don't know that audiences are ever concerned with his physical sort of well-being because he survived so very much what I hope they're concerned with, is his sort of emotional well-being. Like, where is he in his journey? You know, we start four films ago with a guy who is essentially broken. He's a, you know, he's described in, in four, as the Marquis describes him, as a line in there, which is, he's effectively, he's a ghost in search of a graveyard. This series works not because of the stories that are being told, but because we actually care about John Wick. For reasons unknown, and it, a lot of that has to do with Keanu's native charm, a lot of it has to do with the way that shot, a lot of it has to do with the fact that he's up against a series of people that are, even though he's an assassin and essentially a bad man, the people he's up against are worse. One. Two, we, we forgive him because uh, it's almost like because there's a fantasy element, because we're sort of pulling back the curtain and showing the audience another world, everybody that he kills, those civilians are, are injured in the making of these films. Let's put it that way. Uh, the people that die all have signed up for this. They all wear uniforms, essentially. They're all bad people. So yes, though we are tracking the, the the physical condition, we're really hopefully tracking the emotional condition. Where is he in his journey vis-a-vis Helen, vis-a-vis who he was, vis-a-vis writing the wrongs he may or may not have done. And one of the things we have to be very careful about is John Wick exists in an entirely transactional world, and he's a transactional character in a lot of ways. We're very careful that he doesn't do anything altruistic, or certainly not overtly altruistic, though at the end of the movie he actually There's a sacrifice involved that has a redemptive component to it. So again, uh, physically, not so much. Emotionally, mentally, where he is, is what we were most concerned about tracking.
0: 42 regular, wasn't it? It's Kevlar front to back, the latest and ballistic chic. Appropriate for all formal occasions, weddings, funerals, high table duels. After all, a man has to look his best when it's time to get married or buried. You were saying that you enjoy Lawrence Fishburne talking, and this trailer alone is just chock full of some amazing and quotable lines. What do you think makes for great dialogue when you hear it or write it?
1: You know, I, it's all—it's—it's it's, it's entirely obviously scene contingent. But for me, what what makes great dialogue are memorable one-liners. I—I I, I like to build scenes to a moment that pops. So again, it's this idea that every scene needs to tell a little story. Every scene needs to be in in its own way, sort of a discreet, sort of like. A purveyor of some kind of emotion. So if I can get him to to, to hold up a seat and like you know, man's gonna look his best when it's time to get married or buried. It's just like that. That has a little pop or, or, or callbacks because there's so much depth and so many films to pull back. When he says I need a gun, if you're a fan of the franchise, you recognize that has a lot to do with number two, where he needed a gun and, and the the king gave him one, but only seven bullets. You know, line just just go out there and have fun. Well, you know, with you're about to go to your possible death. And and the guy says, any advice, just go out there and have fun. Anything that makes people go, huh. Especially in a movie, you know, that that has a a lot of sound and fury to it and a lot of big images to it. You're trying to cap scenes and write dialogue that people, that is one, not too laborious, two, not expositional. And three, makes people go, yeah, or ooh, or something. Just, again, that evokes an emotional response because what I don't want them to do is get up and decide to go to the bathroom uh, in the middle of this scene. or at the end. I, I want them to anticipate that they're going to miss something if they go. And another way we do that, and I try really hard here, is there are very few scenes that are longer than, say, two minutes. You know, certainly in dialogue, we, we tried to keep them, you know, relatively staccato and short so that we could, we could build and, you know, have, have, have lots of opportunities to keep the audience sort of involved in this piece.
0: My last question about John Wick, how do you think your experience on this project evolved from the way you thought it was going to be to the way it actually did? And what I mean by that is, A, I'm sure there are elements that took a lot more work than you thought, but also I figured we should mention your collaboration with the returning co-writer, Shay Hatton, who I thought we should mention. Sure, oh no, oh, by the way, Shea's wonderful. I, I think
1: it's a collaboration so far as I, I, he's a lovely guy and a really good writer. The nature of many of these films is, First Guy does a lot of really good work and essentially gets burned out. Uh, especially when you're dealing with someone like Chad, who is initially at least wants to, he has ideas, he gives them to you, but he wants to react to things on the page. And I, I, you know, that can, that can be pretty exhausting because you, you have to recreate these over and over and over again. Uh, now, if you're sitting in an office and the movie isn't real, quote unquote, it's, you're, you're developing it, that's very, very challenging it's much easier by the time I come along and they're going to make a movie, but they want some changes. It becomes a lot easier psychologically and emotionally and just sort of spiritually to engage in that full contact sort of type of back and forth and, you know, generating drafts quickly and rewriting scenes and trying things, even though you believe that version four was actually really good, why are you doing version seven? And again, it has to do with the Exacting nature of Chad and Keanu, they really want to leave no stone unturned. They want to miss no opportunities. They want they want they, those guys want to leave nothing on the table. Therefore, you you go through a process, and you know Shane's draft was wonderful. He just I think got tired after about a year of of, of it, and especially a year of sitting in an office of doing it, as opposed to me sitting in an office for a few months and then ending up in in you know on, on set, which is it's its own set of horrors, obviously, especially whenever you you know you're flipping day night and whatnot. But yeah, Shay's great. I cannot say enough good things about him. He's also lovely. Last words, Winston? Just have fun (laughs) out there.
0: I want you to find your peace. But a good death only comes after a good life.
1: You and I left a good life behind a long time ago.
0: As I begin to wrap things up, you know, we mentioned at the beginning that people know you for your fantastic filmography, but there's just so many screenplays that you work on that haven't yet been made. And I was just wondering, how do you try and keep your creative enthusiasm alive for these scripts that are sitting there? And, you know, when has enough time passed where you decide to maybe repurpose some of these ideas from one script to another? You know, the
1: really good question. And one I get asked a lot, especially by, by MFA students, there's a couple of things. If you want to be successful in Hollywood, and this is a general sort of note to young writers, you have to recognize this is a volume business. You can write something that you think is wonderful, that other people think is wonderful. And there's a very good chance that thing is never going to get made. So sitting back and resting your laurels and waiting for it to get made is a self-defeating proposition. So the more irons you have in the fire, the better. That's point one. So to answer your question, as a self-defense mechanism against burnout or, or just annoyance or anger or frustration, I of taking the, the, the position that when I'm working on a piece of property, whether it be a rewrite, a polish, or an original piece, I'm going to pour everything into it. I'm going to give it 100%. What you get whenever you hire me is, I'm all in until you fire me or you know, until the movie gets made. Okay? So I'm going to be all in. But the moment that thing is done, I'm out. So, the moment I have sold a, I, I poured everything hard and sold into a spec. The moment it's sold and my guild mandated passed, and they decide to give it to somebody else, I'm out. I'm out until they call me back in. So, I, I, so I think developing sort of a, a capacity to step away from your own work is necessary for longevity in this business. Because, as you know, and for every movie that gets made, you'll work on 10 that don't. And by the time that you're paid for and that are are purchased and things like that. So the object here is self-preservation and live to fight another day. If you linger and get mad about what's not happening to your property or what's happening to your property that you don't like, you're essentially going to just sit there and sort of be reduced to a bubbling mass of sort of anger, anxiety, strain, stress, which is not good for anybody. And it's not good for the productive process. So uh, there's that. And second of all is, you know, uh, I would say that one of the things that uh, that I have tried to do is remind myself how lucky I am. What we do is it's really wonderful. Like, I don't have to leave home really if I don't want to. I, I you know, I, I, I get to hang out and talk with interesting people. I get to essentially live out my fantasies vicariously through the likes of John Wick. Things that you know, I, I could never do, e- even if they were legal, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to do them. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm the dead guy in a suit, not, not John Wick is the reality in, in that scenario. So it's just, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's keeping a positive perspective on things and, and, and also recognizing that sort of what we started talking about, which uh, was, was that uh, everything's not gonna go the way you want it to go. The lines, you know, many of the lines that I write, I, I've lived those. Like I know how they're supposed to sound and then a very fine actor takes them and changes them. And my first reaction is usually, oh, shit, god, I hate it. But then you, know, you have to realize, wait, it's no longer yours. They, they're delivering it with their voice the way they see it in character. There's so many factors that go into the making of a movie that it is by, by definition a collaborative process and you have to pull back. So you know, there's, there's that side of it. And then the speech your question, which is you know, recognize that not everything gets made. Most things don't. If you wanna be a writer, you need to write consistently And the only way to do that is to figure out how to recuse yourself emotionally from the process once the product is done. So you're all in 100%. It's your entire life while you're creating it. Once it's created, it's out of your hands. It's no longer your problem, no longer your baby. Walk away, go on to something else. And then the best way to do that is to have things lined up, to know that if you finish on Tuesday... Uh, a script and you send it out and you're done, start something else on Wednesday. Now, I'm not saying you have to write the damn thing Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, but just know that you're going, you have someplace to go. Because the, the worst thing is, I'm done, so what am I going to do? I'm going to sit here and wait. And so now you're waiting on agents, you're waiting on lawyers, you're waiting on producers, you're waiting on executives, you're waiting on directors, you're waiting on an actor, which could take forever to get a, a, a no. So, you know, it's, it's again, many arms of the fire and realization is a collaborative process and also recognition that This is not life or death. This is just movies. That's what it keeps you saying.
0: My last question for uh, today, I was just wondering, you know, what has the action genre meant to you as a storytelling vehicle? And what's just the conversation like with yourself, especially when, dare I say, one of the biggest movies you've worked on is about to come out. What's that conversation in regards to all the great work you've produced, but also all the great work you're still looking to produce?
1: Very interesting question. No one's ever asked me Uh, that one. Look, the action genre has been sort of looked down upon for the last like 10-15 years. There was a heyday in the 70s. There was Bullet, French Connection, Dirty Harry. There, there was a, a level where actually auteurs were doing sort of action movies. It sort of fell off a little bit in the 80s and 90s, you know, like you, you started to get a little more, and I love Arnold Schwarzenegger, but a little more sort of like over-the-top sort of characterizations of actions. And it kind of got diminished, and that mixed with it became so slightly embarrassing in Hollywood to be involved in the action genre. I think that Wick, to some extent, has turned that around a little bit. So when I, when I think, like, I, I love action movies, I, I go to the movies to be entertained, less than I go to be provoked. So, you know, which is which puts me in you know, direct opposition to my wife, that's why we can't go to the movies together, because she wants to go see the meaningful movies that matter, and I want to go see things that make me smile or titillate me or make me feel, something. make me, again, make me feel some, some emotional pop. So. Action movies, they're not going anywhere because people like them. I think that there's an underserved audience out there of weirdly enough middle-aged sort of men that actually do like this, the, 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 this stuff and actually do on some level go to the movies. So I'm very much looking forward to, first of all, continue this journey on, on Wick with see, see, see where five will take us. I, if, I'm glad to say if there's a five because we'll, we'll, see, we'll, see, we'll see how four ends. But uh, I, I believe there are plans for a five. So I don't know where it will take us, but I, I feel that in small part because of WIC, that there is a future for action films and there's a future for sort of like, broken, very American heroes. Because remember, the, the action genre today, these, these movies, they're just Westerns. And really, Wick is a cross between a Western and a samurai film. Uh, a lot of these things, you know, you go back to the 70s again, the Bullets of the World, the Dirty Harry, the French Connections, these are just Westerns. And I think that there's still, specifically in America, a little bit of a Western ethic. The sort of the, the lone gunman, the, 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 the one man who is morally sort of questionable, but ends up doing the right thing for the right reasons. I think that exists, and I'm happy about that because I I enjoy those things. With the evolution of technology, you can do amazing, amazing things visually, which has opened up an entire world for us.
0: And there you have it, folks. Thank you to Michael for calling in to record this episode, to the team at Verve for setting this conversation up, and to Eric for taking care of the final mixing. Michael's latest film, John Wick Chapter 4, is now in theaters. If you're a fan of the franchise, don't miss our previous exclusive conversations with the film cinematographer Dan Laushton and with director Chad Stahelski. These two episodes are a masterclass in filmmaking. Please support us by subscribing to the show and leaving a review. It actually really helps to spread the word about the podcast so we can continue to book very special guests. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.